I remember those moments when the numbers became patients and the dollars became pharmacy costs and the hours became rehab. The, the connection to providing support, because that's what I do, to clinicians who then provide the service to these patients and families, it's a privilege to do this work. Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire. Today's guest is Andrew Calkins, the CEO of Sage Family of Companies. Andrew has extensive experience as a healthcare executive in a wide range of healthcare delivery organizations, including long-term care, hospice, home health, and outpatient mental health. In this podcast, we talk about how he went from a clerk in the mailroom to managing complex, geographically dispersed organizations. Andrew's career journey put him in contact with several private equity firms as he went through numerous mergers and acquisitions. We talk about what it's like to lead an organization through a sale, and we talk about how private equity actually operates. I think one of the key takeaways from Andrew's story, especially for early careerists, is how important professional reputation is and how important it is to build a strong professional network. I hope you enjoy listening to Andrew's story. And if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you might be accessing this recording. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. And here is Andrew Calkins. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. You went to Fitchburg State University and earned a Bachelor of Science in Communications. Why did you go to Fitchburg and what was it that drew you to communications? Sure. So the, the, the quick backstory there is college for me, the selection process, I knew I was going to go to college, uh, but the selection process wasn't really as uh, thorough or as uh, thoughtful as, as maybe I would expect it to be today. Um, this was some years ago, uh, I, my family, both of my parents, or I should say neither of my parents went to college. So we didn't have a whole lot of <clears throat> sort of experience in the process. And the, the shorter answer is I had two older cousins uh, who both went to Fitchburg State. And so when it came time Easy to choice. go to college, that's what we knew. Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, and it was close enough. It was in states. I grew up in Cambridge. Uh, it's a little over an hour drive. And uh and it was wonderful. Um, glad, glad I went there. You know, there are some other schools in Cambridge I've heard of, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, <couple big> ones. <laughs> we yeah. won't mention them though. So, so you went to, so how did you choose communications? So I initially started in an undecided or undeclared path, um, which is probably still pretty common these days. Um, and uh, I remember it, the, the, the way I fell into communications, I ended up in my freshman year taking as one of my electives, a technical writing course. I don't really remember why it is that interested me, but it did. And I loved it. Yeah. And uh, it, it was, again, as the, the, the title suggests, technical writing. It, it really focused less on the creative and more on the uh, accuracy and the ability to clearly and articulately impart uh, whatever the message was, directions, instructions. Um, and I, I, I really enjoyed the class. And um, as it turned out, it was 
being taught by a professor who was in the communications department. I met several other communications majors through that class. And before I knew it, I was a communications major. So after you graduated, you did an interesting series of jobs, uh, including an accounting clerk at an organization called Metaplex Group, an operational controller at Frontier Group, then director of patient accounting at Five Star Quality Care. All these ring like accounting jobs uh, and with increasing responsibility. How did you wind up going from a degree in communications to being uh, a leader in finance? Yeah, uh, probably the question I've been asked the most over my <laughs> career, especially by my kids. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the short answer there is I, I graduated with my degree in communications. I was working at the time for a film and video production company, but I was more on the administrative side, associate producing, um, which included some budgeting, some okay. staff and um call it equipment, rental sort of effort. Just there were, if you think about all the logistical things that might go behind a film or a video production, those are the things that I helped with. So I guess I had a, a, a bit of a, you know, a, a, an affinity to or, or propensity towards math and organization anyway. Okay. The then shorter version of the story is through a, a friend of a friend uh, one day asked me if I would be interested in working for this company in Wellesley. I had no clue what they did, but they asked me to, to come in and help more in a clerk. And in, in fact, uh, I, I first started working in the mailroom uh, okay. for this company. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into the details, but 28 years later, uh, I'm in healthcare. And, right. and that's really right. how, that's how it happened. <clears throat> that first job in the mail in the mailroom was at uh, the Metaplex Group. Okay, so you were down there at, at uh, doing the mailroom. I mean, how did that lead to to you know accounting? Sure, um, it was really a, a call it a people path, right? I, I didn't have a, a a desire to become an accountant, um, but through that experience, I met great people, and uh, we developed, I think, good strong relationships. I'd like to think they found me helpful. They asked me if I would, for example, start helping posting journal entries with the accounting team during a month end close, right? Where, where days are typically long and, and it means working weekends and all hands on deck. And, and so I started doing that. And uh, that's really how it, how it came about before I knew it. I was, yeah. And they just needed some extra help and you said yes. And was good enough at it that they asked yeah. me again. Uh, okay, that's that's neat. So I mean, that's a lesson I've I'm always trying to emphasize to my young uh, students is you know these these opportunities come along you may not have I mean did you you did you have any inkling that you know this might actually click with me? No, um, my mindset at the time was was honestly focused on a having a job. Um, then it was b doing that job well. Um, and the furthest thing from my mind was career path um, yeah. or, or uh, you know, a, a specific focus in accounting um, yeah. at the time. So. Yeah. So you transitioned eventually from, I mean, I assume you were doing well enough. They, they just kept you, moved you out of the mailroom. Exactly. So I, I started working more directly with and for the accounting department, really the accounting finance team. So 
whether that was helping out in the payroll department or in accounts payable or with the reimbursement team. And most of it was what you'd consider to be clerical work, right? Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Filing some light spreadsheet work. Um, but that's that's how it all happened. So how did that then lead to moving on to Frontier Group? Yeah, so at the time I was at Metaplex, and, and maybe I had been there not quite a year, Metaplex actually sold their business to a company called Sun Healthcare. And Sun at the time was a very big uh, healthcare provider, predominantly in the long-term care nursing home space, based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And as part of that sale and transition, the Sun team, the, the acquisition team, of course, was looking for relatively cheap, but hardworking help. Right. And, and I fit that bill. And so I assisted the Sun Metaplex transition. And on literally on the, the my last day of employment, as we shipped the final boxes to New Mexico, our former uh, controller at Metaplex had uh, gone over to serve as the CFO for the Frontier Group. And I finished at Metaplex on Friday and I was working at the Frontier Group on Monday. So. So connections early on, kind of being recognized for being a hard worker. I, I think you're right. Again, comes back to, I think, those relationships, the ability to learn quickly, the ability to find ways to be helpful, the ability to ultimately develop some trust and some goodwill with, with the people around me helped create every opportunity I've, I've ever had. So was Frontier Group also healthcare related? Yeah, the, the Frontier Group was. Um, so it really was a call it a not quite a spin-off, but the Frontier Group was a startup. The former president of Metaplex went off and and through, I'm sure, some fundraising or investors or 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 even personal investment, uh, bought a series of nursing homes and started his own nursing home company called the Frontier Group. So there were quite a few folks uh, from the Metaplex team, if you will, who ultimately ended up joining the Frontier Group. Your career is very much around startups and and mergers and acquisitions. So this is interesting. Like right from the get go, you have you were involved in uh, an acquisition uh, with a startup company. That's really cool. It, especially looking back at it now, it was very cool. It was it was some of the the best learning experiences of my career. Uh, again, I'll I'll emphasize I met some of the uh, best leaders and people that I've ever worked with, and um, it it sort of without with, without me probably realizing it, it it taught me how to be a professional, how to take a career seriously um, by observing other people who did it and who were successful, and um, it was great. So you went to Frontier. Did you go in directly as an as the controller, or were you were you doing something else and kind of work your way up to that? Yeah, it was a, it was a, definitely a progression and a workup. So the at the Frontier Group, um, again being relatively new, um, they were building and a call it an in house revenue cycle or a billing team, and so they needed some um, some folks to come in and help them generate claims, submit claims to the insurance companies, collect payment for those claims, post the cash appropriately, 
So having never done that uh, and not really knowing much about revenue cycle as it exists today, never mind then, I said, I'd be happy to join if you will teach me. So I started as an accounts receivable clerk where I learned everything there was to know about billing for long-term care services. And, and so then being a startup, there was an opportunity to, uh, again, sort of pitch in and, and find ways to help in other areas. Eventually, I started working much more closely with the facility administrators and their team, helping okay. them understand their outstanding receivables. Um, hey, Andrew, you seem to be pretty bright at numbers. Can you help me with this spreadsheet? Would you mind taking a look at this P&L? And, and tell me what you think. And, and before I knew it, I was unofficially assisting a lot of the administrators in budget preparation, PL analysis, and, and the like. <laughs> and I guess one way to put it is the, the position, the, the title of operational controller was created around me. Um, okay. It didn't exist, uh, yeah. but they, they probably had, at that point had to come up with a better name for what I did. So, <laughs> so you basically just built built this position, and that's possible. Was that possible because this was a startup, and there was a lot of was there a lot of growth happening around that, and just the opportunity? Because maybe that wouldn't be possible in a really well established organization. Um, maybe, and, and I'll expand on that. Certainly, yeah. being a startup, and and there being the opportunity for folks to grow and, and expand as the business did, that helped. That said, what I found, you know, even up until today in my career, when there are good people who have and demonstrate value, smart organizations, I think, find ways to engage those people. So uh, where positions don't exist, uh, we shouldn't assume they never will. Good, hardworking people are hard to find. And so yeah. I, know I, I try to build around them. Yeah. Okay. Um, you went to, uh, you then went on to director of patient accounting at Five Star Quality. So now we've got that background for you that you were in accounting doing, doing a lot of this kind of work. What was the jump um, uh, to Five Star? So Five Star was a management company that had been started out of a, a healthcare REIT, a real estate investment trust. Okay. So there was a healthcare focused REIT who owned a series of nursing homes, think, think the buildings, the brick and mortar across the country. And they would lease those buildings out to operators, management companies who would run them. Um, Five Star, for a whole series of reasons, decided, or, or at the time the REIT, had decided that they wanted to start running, managing their own properties. So they created Five Star Quality Care. I met the folks who were founding, starting Five Star, um, because back at the Frontier Group, I was previously a tenant. We, we were one of the operators who was renting their buildings from um, okay. And they had reached out to me and asked me if I would come help them start this management company. And, and I say start, I, I might have been employee five or employee 10. So okay. I, I, I wasn't the early. first. Yeah, I wasn't the first person through the door, but, but I was early. Um, and with my experience in accounts receivable and at that time, then reimbursement and a general working knowledge of nursing home. 
finance and nursing home operations. Um, we felt it was a good fit. And, and so that's what I did. So up to that point, um, and this is your, you're still quite young at this point, but you know, up to that point, what would you say are the, were the big lessons you had learned in your career? Yeah, that's actually, I like that question because to me that that's sort of the answer here is the, maybe the impetus for, for me now declaring myself a healthcare sort of person, right? So as I mentioned earlier, in, in the early days, Metaplex, and even to an extent at the Frontier Group, I didn't really have an appreciation for what we did. I knew the job, I was good at it, and, and I, I enjoyed the people I worked with, but I still didn't have a great appreciation for the services that the company provided. It then started to click towards the, the tail end of the Frontier Group where this number really represented patients and these dollars were medication costs and these hours were units of rehab. Um, and I really started to, again, understand and, and then appreciate the work we did. Um, and it was around that point when I started to realize I'm going to work probably the rest of my, most of my adult life anyway, I might as well do something that is uh, helpful some way in some way that sort of makes me feel good about what we do, what the company does um, and healthcare then and now I, I can't think of a better way. By the time I got to five star, I, I loved the concept of helping people. I'm not a clinician, so clearly I couldn't do it directly. Uh, but any other way I could help those clinicians provide services, that's what I was going to do. That's neat. And so, so you're drawing, so that at this point, you're kind of committed to the industry. Though, I mean, with, with the financial background you had, you probably could have taken that to a hotel chain or a, or a, I'm thinking of something relatively close, but you know, probably almost any other organization, you still would have been pretty fungible at that point. It was the 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 sense of mission that really kind of drew you to, or or had you 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 realized was um, uh, what was drawing you to the to the industry to stay on in the industry. Yeah, I, I, that as well as I had made some, I think, great connections mm -hmm. in the industry. At least, again, at that early point, as evidenced by my ability to move from, from one stage to the next um, uh, and, and be asked to do more. So, so I had connections. There was also, if, if I had to reflect back on it now, I recognized through my experiences that there was a bit of a, call it a deficit in the industry. There, there weren't, at least as I had seen, a whole lot of operations-focused finance professionals. I'm probably doing a huge discredit to all the people I've worked with, but, but there was, there was room there. I, I yeah. knew I could feel that this was a place that, um, you know, it was, it was sort of, a, a, an underserved or a little bit of a, a, a gray space there. And so that, that's where I stayed. I mean, the, the long-term care industry, the long-term care portion of the healthcare industry uh, has gone through a huge amount of consolidation in, in your career, I, I think. Seems like 
that's probably the result of, of that. Like it hadn't been professionalized to the degree that it is now. Is that an accurate statement? I think that's an accurate statement. That may not in, on its own be the reason for some of the consolidation, um, but certainly part of it, right? And, and to expand on that a little bit more, there were, uh, especially in that late 80s in through the 90s, mid 90s, especially, there were a lot of regulatory change okay. in the long-term care industry. Reimbursement models changed from cost-based reimbursement to more of a prospective payment uh, model. And the shifting in the reimbursement, call it uh, environment, really created a need for operators, businesses to be more sophisticated, a little bit more uh, than maybe they were used to historically, where there were a lot of smaller one or two facility ownership groups, um, where the owner was the administrator and also the CFO. And, and so there, there was a need for the industry to, to, I won't say professionalize, but to get a little bit more sophisticated. Okay. Yeah, that's, a, that's probably a, a better word for it. Let's talk for a second just about that, because that's a really important concept. Uh, going from cost plus to uh, sort of a prospective payment method, can you explain that very, you know, briefly what what the what what that means and and why it would have driven this need for more sophistication? Yeah, that, so the 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 short explanation is that providers, most providers in different aspects of healthcare, back in those days, were were paid based off of how much they spent. So for any particular year, if it cost me X to provide services, at the end of the year, I would submit cost reports to the government and payer entities, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. And my subsequent year's reimbursement rates would be based off of those prior cost reports. So it was a cost-based reimbursement system. Um, so if, if it I had cost- to- if it cost more, you got paid more. If it costs more, you got paid more. Okay. Uh, and and certainly you would need to justify those costs as being related to providing care and services that are reasonable and necessary and sort of all of those things. But there was a lot of room there. And when that shifted, providers now, operators, uh, needed to be smarter about managing costs and, uh, and, and finding ways to deliver the same greater quality of services at a more cost-effective, cost-focused, cost-sensitive level. So, Yeah. The, so, so the hospitals, hospitals went through this in the early 80s. So when did it happen with, with long-term care? Was in the 90s? I, yeah. I think it was mid-90s, Okay, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it went from... I. I, I, as a long-term care operator, turn in a, a cost report that that then my my reimbursement is based on how much I'm spending to this prospective payment where I'm getting a fixed payment and and they don't care how much it costs me. So then I have to manage below that. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah. I mean, cost reports were and still are necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are still used by the, the different payers to ultimately inform and, and help establish rates. But, but they're no longer as directly related to each provider's rates. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think your, your summary is a good one. Okay. So you, in 2001, you left um, 
uh, five star and went to be the chief financial officer for Parkview Specialty Hospital. Um, how'd that come about? Yeah, so um, 2001, um, and, and actually prior to, um, um, and maybe I'll, I'll go back, when I was with Five Star, um, obviously a startup, so there was a lot of work to be done, and, and we had, I think, 60 or so nursing facilities across 12 states, none of which were in New England. So there was a lot of travel for me, uh, primarily being a facility level, uh, again, at the time, counts receivable and reimbursement. It was important for me to be in the field. So I was doing quite a bit of traveling at the time. The the simple date to point to was 9-11-2001 when the world changed. Yeah. And um, travel was no longer something I was interested in doing, at least not at that level. Again, through a lot of the connections that I had established over the years, um, I was talking to some, I'll, I'll call them friends, colleagues, and they asked me if I was interested in maybe staying more local and, and not having to travel. And, and that idea intrigued me, certainly pleased my wife. And so that's how it happened. All right. So, you, so I mean, this is a smaller organization than than five star you were managing 60 organizations what i was looking at looked like parkview at the time was was two organizations is that or two two entities um meaning locations yeah uh, it, it was actually one at the time okay um and this was my first foray into uh, the hospital world right so we okay. we i now move from long term care nursing homes to the hospital world and the the unique piece about Parkview is a, a specific hospital license called a long-term acute care hospital. So, mm -hmm. so not the traditional or typical acute care hospital you might think of. It was, as the name and license suggests, a long-term acute care hospital. But you're right. One location, I drove my car to that parking lot for every day for five years, and I parked in the right. same spot. I, All right. No more travel. So, so what does it mean to be a long-term care acute hospital? Yes. So the the, the service LTAX, uh, as we call them, provided then and now, uh, are somewhat similar in, in the long-term aspect as nursing homes. Patients might be there, and, and long-term is relative, right? But they might be there anywhere from a couple weeks to, in some cases, several months. And then in, in some of the more extreme cases, several years, uh, depending on the, the, the patient's uh, situation. The acute care side of that obviously indicates that their, their care needs were far more serious, far more acute. Some of these folks were on ventilators. Some of these folks were uh, on telemetry units where they were being monitored 24-7. Some of these folks had... Uh, complex medical conditions that couldn't be, still can't be provided for in a typical long-term care or nursing home setting, certainly couldn't be provided for at home. But their, the length of stay that they would need care for didn't really work for them to stay in an acute care setting, where your typical length of stay might be, I don't know, two or three days. That's the simple difference. Yeah. Yes. Can you give an example of the kind of injury somebody might come in with that would that that would 
would justify an admission to a to an LTAC instead of a, a acute care facility or a, or a nursing home? Yeah. So so back then, and and the the industry has shifted quite a bit in twenty plus years or twenty years. Um, but back then, it might be a, a hip replacement sort of gone wrong, right? With with an infection, and then other comorbidities or complexities that just really required 24-7 nursing and physician care for the patient, but didn't require the intensity of a, a true acute care admission. As I mentioned a while ago, we, we had a good amount of respiratory patients, some of whom, for, for whatever series of, of reasons or, or illnesses they might have had, ended up being uh, placed on ventilators in the acute care setting. They would then transition to an LTAC, where over a period of maybe two, four, six weeks, we would slowly help them wean off the ventilator. So, so those types of situations. So what was happening at Parkview at the time that, that why were you brought in other than it would have been convenient for you, you didn't want to travel anymore? What, why did they reach out to you and what were they hoping uh, to accomplish? Yeah, so Parkview probably a little bit before I joined had gone through a, a change of ownership um, and it has an interesting history. Uh, it used to, at the time, or way back when, it was the Springfield Municipal Hospital. So it was owned and operated by the city of Springfield. But um, through a series of then private ownership um, under Parkview, they were simply looking for a, a CFO. Um, and it ended up being that the, the CEO, if you will, of the parent company who owned Parkview, was someone who I had crossed paths with back during my Metaplex days, unbeknownst to me. And, and in one of those small world examples, my name came across and, and uh, they said, yeah, we, we think we heard of that guy. Okay. And uh, so, so there was a vacancy and, and the timing just worked out for me when I was ready to stop traveling. Uh, there was an opportunity and I, I took it. And it, it wasn't long before you were actually promoted to be the CEO. Correct. Um, so, so they're a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the call it the, maybe the, the business side of healthcare, right? I, I came in as the CFO, um, the CEO at the time, again, I, I didn't have great visibility into it, but, but there was apparently a, a, a declining level of confidence in that person's ability. Um, and in a short period of time, I was able to, um, I guess, again, develop some trust, earn some trust from the, the ownership group. Um, and in less than a year, they asked me if I would take over as the CEO. So, so maybe another example for me where good relationships, demonstration of a, a certain level of competency and a capacity to learn and a willingness to learn created an opportunity for me. So I, in a, in a matter of a year, from not knowing anything about LTACs to being the CEO of an LTAC. You had spent, at least from our discussion so far, you had spent most of your career up to that point on the finance side. You, had, you would have had some contact with the operational side uh, as a result of that, but did you, I mean, jumping from running the financial 
component of the organization to running the entire organization, especially a hospital, must have been quite a quite a leap, quite a learning curve. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So that that is the the, the first moment when I then became an operator, right? Yeah. And, and to your point, I was always on the finance accounting uh, sort of side of things. But at that point, I was now officially an operator and it, it did. I, I'll, I'll admit I had some sleepless nights thinking, boy, I'm, I'm responsible for everything. Yeah. Uh, housekeeping and food service and uh, facility maintenance and, uh, oh, by the way, care delivery and staffing. But I, I think the reason I was a good fit is at the time, Parkview, um, as evidenced by the fact that I came in as the CFO first, uh, needed better financial controls, needed better operational finance leadership. And my, my sense now, I guess, reflecting back is I was able to demonstrate that well enough as the CFO and, and the need was so great that it made sense for someone like me uh, with that finance background, finance mindset, but with an ability to translate that to operational issues. To my earlier points about numbers, our patients and dollars, our medication and hours, our rehab. I guess I was the perfect fit. So what was it like uh, making that jump? I mean, the day you walked, you took off the CFO hat and you put on your CEO hat and walked in. I mean, what were you, um, you know, what was that? What was that transition like for you? Yeah. So my, my time at Parkview, quick, quick overarching comment were, were some of the best years of my career. I learned probably the most uh, about what it meant and what it truly took to, to be an operator, a leader of a, of a healthcare company facility. So I, I look back on it fondly, but to your direct question, my first focus was really on how to manage a, a very large group of, of providers and, and, and great hardworking employees. I had to manage them through a change. Their, their CEO just changed. Uh, there's a new leader here, and and boy, what is he going to ask us to do? So my first focus, you know, I would say maybe for the first 90 days, were really to just make sure that the clinicians, the nurses, the managers, the respiratory therapists, that everyone was comfortable, that they understood that their focus on patient care was still the top priority, and from an administrative perspective, as the CEO. I was simply here to continue helping them do what they do best. Um, so that was my first focus. Yeah. And, and then I would lose sleep at night wondering how, how do I, how am I supposed to manage, uh, you know, again, a, a dietary department? I don't know anything about kitchens. <laughs> <laughs> so how'd you go about learning about kitchens, I, and housekeeping and everything at once? Yeah. So at, at the same time, it was some of the best experience, uh, professional experience I've had. It was the hardest. I yeah. would work. 15 hour days. I was there at 7 a.m. and and uh, sometimes getting home at 10 or 11 p.m. And I would spend time in each of those departments and, and really reflecting back to my earlier comments and my earlier success. I did this through developing relationships with people. Um, so I, I would meet daily with my dietary director and with my facility maintenance director and 
twice a day with my chief nursing officers and once a week with my chief medical officer. And, and we would just talk and the time I would listen. Um, yeah. So you were the CEO for about five years up through 2007, at which point um, Parkview was sold to, to Kindred. Was there always a plan to sell? Was this, was this sort of a turnaround situation or do you know, like what was the owner ownership group thinking? Yeah. Um, well, with, with the benefit of hindsight, I, I think there was um, an interest of in selling at some point, but but now let me backfill that. The LTAC licenses then, uh, perhaps now it's been a while since I've been in that business, uh, but there were very rare licenses. Most states across the country had moratoriums on them. They were uh, hugely popular amongst the acute care community in the markets they were in because they were a great discharge option for those highly complex acute cases who just required longer stays. And, and, you know, to the extent that there was an LTAC a couple miles from an acute care center, they loved it. It was a great discharge option. So over the, my time there, the LTAC license became more and more, um, I'll say valuable. The market for LTAC licenses because again, you, you couldn't really start them up, so you had to go buy them. The market was hot. And if they weren't planning it the day they acquired it, they, they soon after realized that there was an opportunity to exit. So that, that's the long answer. But uh, yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, again, we did sell to Kindred. So clearly it was a plan at some point. So what was it like? I mean, at, at what point did you, were you told, hey, we're, we're preparing this for, for sale? And how did that change you, your focus? How did they want you to change your focus as CEO? Was there was there any? I mean, you still had to run a, a quality operation, so I'm not thinking that. But how did things change? How did your emphasis change as you prepared to bring it to market? Yeah. So the, the short answer is I I wasn't really aware, right? I, I, <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't that involved. Okay. Um, and and as I've learned since, that's that's pretty normal. To the extent that there are at least healthcare companies who end up being sold, very rarely does the seller announce their intention to sell ahead of time. Um, okay. Things happen quietly, confidentially, um, for a couple of reasons. The, the first biggest one is it can be a huge distraction to the operation, which comes back to your question. Mm. Um, so the, the good part for me, you know, Ignorance is bliss, as they say. I, I didn't know we were selling, so I just kept working hard. Um, the the other reason I, I think it makes sense for those types of things to, to stay confidential and quiet is, um, again, as I've learned, there are far more deals that do not get done than those that do. So there end up being conversations and discussions and, and lead-ups to what looks like it could be a, a transaction, and then for one reason or another, they fall apart. So if you if you get too far ahead of yourself announcing these things, you can end up having to try to put the toothpaste back in the tube, as they say. That's a that would be an unpleasant task. Okay, so yeah. um, <laughs> so did you stay on after the sale? Yeah. So so the way it worked in that example, and and this has really been my experience. Uh, again, I, I 
probably not unique to healthcare, but it is at least specific to healthcare. Typically, what happens when a, a purchase and sale agreement is signed, there are a whole series of regulatory approvals that have to take place. Uh, the state in which you operate has to approve the transfer of the license. The payer contracts, in this case, federal Medicare provider numbers all have to be approved. Um, so, so between purchase and sale and actual change of ownership could be anywhere from three months to a year. So my experience there, while I wasn't initially part of the taking it to market, once the plan was announced and there was a sale, then my, my job, of course, was to help keep the business steady, provide continuity of care through the transition. And, and then the direct answer to your question is um, my agreement then with the buyer and seller was that I would stay on for a period of one year to help ensure continuity of leadership through the change of ownership. So that's what I did. So then you you moved on to Allegiance Hospice and Palliative Care, which at the time was a startup. So now you're back in the startup world again. How did that opportunity come about? Or you sure. at that point you were running out of time. I mean, did you not want to stay with Kindred? You just want to do something new? Or so yes, to really two answers to, to that question both led me to the same place. When the sale of Parkview to Kindred uh, became public, when it was announced and, and was happening, the, the timing worked out where the CEO at Allegiance um, was the former chief operating officer of Metaplex. The, nice. The person I would All deliver right. their mail to uh, <laughs> way back when, right? So so be nice to your mail clerks. Um, but. Um, through that network, um, he knew, the folks at Allegiance knew, okay, here's a guy who sort of knows what he's doing, has, has sort of been in different aspects of healthcare, um, and can probably help us grow this business. And oh, by the way, we're pretty sure he's going to be available soon because they just sold the hospital. So, so I think that timing worked out for one. And then two, the second reason, and, and your, I think the, the final part of your question, um, Kindred, a great organization, then and now, uh, but very large, publicly traded. I can't remember what their their size was at the time, but but if if it it was probably close to the billion mark, and and to me that was just bigger than than I was interested in. I enjoyed the connections and the. With, with leadership and ownership, I enjoyed the opportunity to sort of learn new tasks and, and, and pick up new duties. And in larger companies like a kindred at the time, I probably would have been left in that one lane. So it was a good time for me to move on. And, and I had been there for, it was five years, almost six. And that was enough time. It's not it was, So I'm looking for another challenge at that point. It was, it was, yeah. When the opportunity came up, I was excited again. So it yeah. felt good. Yeah. I, I really want to kind of highlight for a second, particularly for my younger listeners, your story just keeps coming back to, there was this person I knew in my prior assignment there was, or, or prior, uh, you know, prior organization. And just that network that you, um, you know, ha- were a part of that people, people were reaching out to you. 
how do you cultivate that? How do you, how do you, how actively do you cultivate that? Is that a, is that a, um, and obviously it was important because it, 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 it is the way you have, it seems that you have moved, uh, through your, through your careers, less about like going on LinkedIn and looking for, for job opportunities. And it's, these opportunities seem to be coming to you, um, more often than you looking for them. Can you talk a little bit to that? Like, uh, you know, at this point in your, at that point in your career, were you, yeah. were you thinking about networking and, and, and like, how did, how did you cultivate that? I guess that's sure. Sure. Um, so I, the, the short answer is I, I didn't think about it. It, it wasn't a plan. I, I didn't, at no point in my career did I think or decide, boy, I, I really want to get close to this person because later on they might be able to help me. I, I, I didn't, it wasn't that deliberate. Um, what I like to think now, um, and, and hopefully I'm still doing this, is I was just genuinely interested in doing good and, and being helpful. And to the extent that I then had confidence in my abilities to do those things and, and especially confidence in my ability to learn new things. And, and then again, my, my ability to earn trust in people. I, I, I think it was organic. It was natural. I didn't put any pressures on myself to be something that I wasn't. I didn't pretend to be a CPA. I didn't pretend to have a, a, a you know a degree in accounting, but I was willing to learn and and figure things out. And and I, I think if there's a highlight for me and and hopefully a lesson for others is stay true to that. Trust in your ability to be who you are. Be willing to work hard and learn. And the leaders around you, uh, especially those you respect will they will see that they will feel that and i've been lucky enough that in many situations where i probably wasn't the best fit on paper i was the best fit in person and and it's worked for me uh, so allegiance hospice and palliative care what what was the business so allegiance was a Primarily Massachusetts-based, we did have some business up into New Hampshire and then Maine eventually, uh, but a provider of hospice services. So, so hospice, simply put, being uh, end-of-life services for patients and families through mostly a Medicare benefit. And we provided nurses, hospice aides, think CNAs, social workers, spiritual support through chaplains. Um, volunteer services to, again, patients and their families who had a terminal diagnosis. Now, was this primarily home-based or, or did you have buildings as well uh, or a mix of, of the two? So, so hospice as a, as a benefit, hospice as a, a license allows for, and, and, and I think this is the brilliant part of the hospice benefit, it allows for the service to be provided in any and every a setting that fits the patient. So it could be home-based. If the patient is a resident in an assisted living facility, it can be provided there. If they're a resident in a long-term care or a nursing home, it can be provided there. Um, in some cases, if they're 
currently in an acute care hospital, which again, doesn't tend to be for very long, but it's possible for hospice to, to follow patients there. And, and then in some other cases as well, some hospice providers actually have hospice homes or hospice mm-hmm. facilities mm-hmm. where the brick and mortar exists strictly to the, uh, to the point of servicing hospice patients. So it can happen in any of those settings. At Allegiance, we were primarily focused on nursing home residents. Okay. Um, and and if you if you remember, the the CEO of Allegiance was the former COO of Metaplex, where way back in the long-term care days, we knew something about nursing homes. So we knew how to care for, work with, partner with nursing home operators. Now we were going to bring the hospice expertise into that setting. It was a great model. Okay. So, so it was primarily going, your, your people were going into a, a nursing home run by a different organization uh, to provide that benefit to the patient. Correct. Okay. That's really interesting. So Allegiance, so this is an interesting series of events. As I understand it, Allegiance was purchased by Soul and Moore in a hospice in 2009, and then Soul Amor was purchased by Genesis Life Choices. That, do I have that sequence correct? You, you do. There were a lot of moving <laughs> parts um, yeah. in, in that short period of time. So I'll expand it on it a little bit more. Uh, Soul Amor, or, or Sun Love, uh, if, you, if you break it down, Soul Amor was a subsidiary of Sun Healthcare. If that name sounds familiar, it's because that's the company we sold Metaplex to way back when I was wrapping up my mailroom duties. <laughs> so Solomore was a subsidiary of Sun Healthcare. Sun, the prime business, uh, again, was nursing homes. Um, and then Solomore provided hospice services uh, across the country. Solomore purchased Allegiance uh, again in, in 2009. In that case, Unlike my kindred experience, Solomore, albeit part of a larger uh, organization, Solomore itself was still very sort of startup-ish. Okay. Um, and, and had all of those things that I liked in, in terms of opportunity to learn new things and be a part of growth plans and, and new market penetration and different acquisitions. Now I was starting to, these are my first experiences into acquiring other businesses. Uh, so when Allegiance sold to Solomore, I agreed to stay with Solomore and I continued to run the business that, that was Allegiance, um, but then eventually took on other markets across the country, Arizona, New Mexico, wow. uh, those types of places. Yeah. So you mentioned that this was the first time you were on the kind of on the acquisition side. So you were, while you were with Solomore, you were helping choose targets to for for Solomore to, to acquire? Yep. The, the short answer is yes. Um, and, and consistent theme here again for me, I, I had never been a part of a uh, an acquisition effort. But having apparently done a really good job on the on the seller side, the then CEO of Solomore would ask me if I would help out with some analysis on this business and and call it some of the due diligence and integration efforts uh, relative to new acquisitions. So I, I wouldn't say I was leading and, and selecting targets, 
But when when targets were selected and identified, I helped with the analysis. And most importantly, what I did was help with the integration. So once they were acquired, you helped them become part of the larger entity. Sure, exactly. And and again, the 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 simple script was, you know, I I just went through this myself. The company I was running was just acquired by Solomore. Here's how we got through it. Let me help you. So Solomore then was acquired by Genesis Life Life Choice. Was that sort of a a plan you think all along for them to divest that portion of the business or 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 was it just a great opportunity that came up that they they decided to go for it? Yeah, so so probably a little bit bigger answer there. We hmm. we would go back to the the part where Solomore was a subsidiary of Sun Healthcare. Mm-hmm. So Genesis at the time was another big national long-term care skilled nursing provider probably about 2 billion in revenue uh sun as a as an entity i think was around 2 billion as well so it was actually sun healthcare who sold their entire business including solomore to genesis so the the solomore team me me and my team we were along for the ride uh, the the entire sun enterprise was sold and so then so too was solomore now the quick flip here is where Genesis really their 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 whole model then uh, probably now was that they were going to stay true to their core uh, service line, which was long term care and skilled nursing. So while they were interested and excited about the Sun acquisition, they had no interest in being hospice providers. So they had through some I, I think financing affiliation, they had a relationship with Life Choice Hospice another call it regional provider based out of the, the northeast I, I, just outside of pennsylvania maybe in new jersey so the way it worked is genesis bought sun and then immediately took solomore and sold it to life choice okay so okay. so wow. it's a, sort of a simultaneous you know trade type of uh, type of deal okay so as soon as the deal closed, we were then part of Life Choice Hospice. Oh, interesting. All right. So you left Life Choice in 2013 to do a different kind of organization, which was uh, you went to Loving Care Agency, which was a private duty home care agency. What what brought you to that organization? So again, consistent theme here: the CEO of Solomore Hospice whom I had met through the Allegiance sale and we worked together on different acquisitions after the Sun Genesis life choice transaction, he moved on to loving care agency. And within a few months called me and said, boy, we could really use you here to come lead our pediatric home care business. And, and me again, Sure, I don't know anything about pediatric home care, but I'm happy to to learn that that's what I did. And wow. the to to come sort of to to give the view from the other side, the transaction with and ultimately which brought Solomore to Life Choice Hospice, great group. Uh, the the folks at Life Choice, I, I really like them. For me, I was looking for 
at that point in my career, I was looking for, now I was, now I was deliberately thinking about what was next. I, I've been in leadership positions, CFO, CEO back in the hospital days, but that was still one location, regional vice president, uh, those types of roles. It was time for me to start finding a path to a president and then ultimately a CEO role over a, a full organization. And that path didn't exist at the time for me at Life Choice. So there was really two drivers there. The path wasn't there. But oh, by the way, someone I know and trust just called me and asked me if I would come help them. And that's when I took over as now the president of Loving Care Agency. So I was a step closer to my goal. So you were there for two years. And once again, this turned into uh, Loving Care was, was sold. Were you, what were you brought in to do in terms of, was that a, a plan again? Like, did you come in knowing that was likely to be a, a, a kind of a, a plan or, or were you thinking this is a long-term thing? And then, and then, oh, by the way, whoops, it's actually being sold. Yeah. So, so this one was a little bit more of a plan. Okay. Um, uh, it was um, a bit of a turnaround. There were some regulatory issues some just so call it business efficiency and effectiveness issues and, and poor financial performance. And so Loving Care needed new leadership and they needed somebody to sort of bring that all together and, 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 and call it fix it up with ultimately the understanding that it would probably be sold. That this was my first real direct experience with private equity groups. Okay. Um, where it was understood at some point, we will likely sell. So uh, my focus there was first and foremost to come in and help ensure that the level of care and services being provided to the children we were sort of entrusted with uh, was top notch, that uh, we did so in a compliant uh, uh call it a regulatory environment and way and, and ultimately ensuring that the business was prepared for the potential of a sale. Um, so, so do we have the right process, infrastructure, uh, org chart, service delivery that would make for as best possible a seamless transition to another owner? Again, my focus being to, to, uh, uh make sure there was no disruption in care and service. I didn't know when that was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, that could have, could have been five years, could have been one year, but I, but I knew what the mission was, which was uh, let's fix this up and make it better than it is today. And, and then we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Okay. So had it been acquired by, had, had loving care been acquired by a private equity firm prior to you arriving then? It, it had okay. probably about uh I think it was about maybe four years before I got there. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, the, the, a private equity firm had purchased the company from a, a family-owned, it was a family-owned business. Back to uh -huh. our earlier comments about the consolidation and long-term care and the need for providers to get a little bit more sophisticated, home health care, and, and so too hospice went through a similar transition where you would see larger entities, companies, investors, purchasing smaller family run startup type businesses. So that's the private equity group was probably in there about four years, maybe five years before I got there. 
what was the change then that necessitated the more sophisticated management? Was it just compressing reimbursement? So the big difference was most of the states, uh, at least that we were in at the time, had recently gone to a conversion to managed Medicaid. Okay. So if you, if you think about Medicaid dollars are really state managed funds. So every state has their own Medicaid budget and they could dole those dollars out to the different aspects of healthcare. Hospitals get X, nursing homes get Y, home care agencies get Z, et cetera. The Medicaid world, the state started uh, converting to managed Medicaid. So they were handing the management of their reimbursement and their funding off to uh, what would otherwise we think of as managed care companies. That shift both initiated and then required providers to get more sophisticated contract negotiation with multiple managed Medicaid providers. You were no longer just dealing with the state of New Jersey, for example. You were dealing with four or five different payers who they carved up the state of New Jersey and you take this region, you take that region. So, And then there was, a, a, and appropriately so, a, a heavier focus on quality of service and outcomes. And it was important for us to be able to not only provide great service, but then to be able to demonstrate it, to prove it, to document it, to report it. And there again, the sophistication um, need, if you will, comes in. So that was that was the big shift in home care at that, at that time. Interesting. Okay. So that was sold, and um, you went on to actually work with Genesis in 2015. I did. So, right, we we eventually were successful in exiting, selling uh, Loving Care Agency. In that, in one of those small small world examples, um, the the private equity firm who we partnered with at Loving Care Agency was working with Genesis to help Genesis sell a series of hospice businesses and home care businesses that they had acquired, just as they had acquired Solomar yeah. through that Sun acquisition. They did a series of other acquisitions and Genesis found themselves with a, a reasonably large, uh, mostly out in the West Coast, uh, California, Nevada, Arizona, I think, um, Utah, Idaho, they had a, a series of home care and hospice businesses that they were looking to sell because, again, not their not their core business. Yeah. Um, so the connections through uh, the private equity firm I had worked with, my at that time then former CEO at Loving Care Agency was helping with that. They asked me if I would come in and help organize the hospice side of that business and prepare it to be sold. And, and in that case, this was an active, it was, it was well known that they were selling it. Everyone in the industry knew that Genesis does not hold on to home health and, and hospice companies. So that one presented unique challenges in that. To my earlier point, in this case, it was an entire organization that knew it was being sold. Yeah. So I had to come in and, and try to guide them through that process. Must have been challenging to hold on to talent and and things like that during during that period. Always, yeah, always appropriately so. Folks get get nervous. They they there's the unknown on the other side, and and what if really starts to get louder and louder in your mind. And in a world where good providers, good leaders, good managers in, in healthcare 
are, are uh, you know, a, a highly sought after commodity, people have options. So it was a challenge. And, and for me, the focus was, we've all done great things here. There's a lot to be proud of. Let's continue to do that. Let's continue to build off of that. And as much as a change in ownership and the potential for a, a different maybe name on your paycheck, at the end of the day, it's the team that's most important and it's your patients that are most important. And, and if we can find ways to keep this all together, boy, wouldn't that be exciting and won't we all feel better about that? And we did. That's neat. So in 2016, you came to Community Intervention Services. What is uh, Community Intervention Services? Community Intervention Services, CIS as we call it, was a mental health and behavioral health provider, all community-based, community and clinic-based. So again, think outpatient clinics, think in-home think in school settings, uh, that's where we provided those services with a primary focus on providing services to children. We, we did have a, a, a good adult population, but the bulk of our, our clients served were children. And CIS was another private equity-backed business that was founded in, um, I want to say, 2012 or, or somewhere around there. And um, CIS had a founding CEO and uh, had done a series of acquisitions across multiple states, primarily on the East Coast. And, and they found themselves in 2015 really struggling financially, operationally, uh, and, and, and in a couple instances, uh, there were some regulatory and compliance issues that ultimately turned into legal issues. So, so there was there was, it was CIS was going in the wrong direction, and through some connections and networking, now at this point, having gone through a series of private equity acquisitions and transactions, and and having I think demonstrated a capability of helping to clean up and sort of fix organizations, I was uh, introduced to, uh, again, this ownership group. And the short story is they asked me if I would come in and help fix turnaround CIS. And so that's what I did. So, so was CIS created by the, by the private equity group with the intention of, of building, a, building a business that could then be spun off? Or, I mean, how, how did it, or was it an existing business that was then, uh, how, how did it? How did it come about? Yeah, sure. Um, so in my experience, uh, private equity, um, uh, call it investments, um, typically start with uh, an acquisition of an existing business. Okay. So to your point about, you know, the, the investment thesis, the, the, the approach was likely let's this is an interesting space, a space we think we can do good. Behavioral health and mental health, as we all know today, is just so that the need is, is growing exponentially. Yeah. Um, and there was a real, um, you know, uh, call it opportunity to come in and, and do something worthwhile. Um, and, and then hopefully at the same time, make some money off of it. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
the, the way private equity investments work is, is typically there's, there are funds raised, but then an existing business that's already has a license, it already has staff, it already has a market, it already has a, you know, it, at least a, a, some P&L history to it. That's typically the first investment. And, and then it's a series of tuck-ins or add-ons to that with the objective in the CIS case to build a larger multi-state enterprise um, you know, in, this, in the same industry, in this case, mental health. So that was, that was the plan. CIS did a series of, I think, five or six acquisitions between 2012 and 2015. And and in the end, what the end the end of the acquisition activity when I joined, uh, we had about a little over two thousand employees providing services for a little over forty thousand clients across uh, seven states. Wow, that's huge! So this is a different space than you'd been in before. You hadn't, I mean, healthcare. I mean, mental health is a component of most. Healthcare, but but this was explicitly mental health focused as opposed to uh, what you had done before. Um, how is it different? How did, what were you learning this time? Yeah, sure. Um, so so very different. Um, this was my first now call it shift between a, a medical uh, um, uh, call it service. Um, again, long-term care, hospital, home care, hospice. We were really we were we were treating. To your point, we we dealt with and supported the mental health and the behavioral health side of 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 healthcare, but our primary focus was the medical issue. In this case, the primary focus was the behavior and the the mental health status of of the clients. Um, now, if I were a clinician trying to learn the difference, uh, boy, that would be tough. Um, but okay. as, as an administrator, um, what I had to focus on were really all the, the same core components. How do we ensure we have high levels of staff engagement, that we keep them focused on the quality and the service to the clients and the families operationally and, and call it administratively? Let me make sure that there's the right infrastructure, that we're, we're doing things efficiently, um, and, and that we're creating good uh, management tools and, and uh, processes, ultimately to the point where our providers can, can just focus on their, their clients, right? So, so anyways, no different than what I had done, okay. um, you know, for, in the prior years. Um, this was, uh, again, predominantly a Medicaid-funded business, so very similar to the uh, experience at Loving Care Agency. So, okay. Um, so, did you were you brought in as the CEO then? I was. Um, so the uh, without getting into too much detail on that side, the, the founding okay. CEO uh, uh, was uh, left. Um, I came in, took over as the CEO. Um, and the focus there was just as I had mentioned before. My, my first priority was engaging the team and making sure everyone felt comfortable. Making sure that uh, I could develop some level of trust with them, and 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 then once we were all sort of clear that we were aligned in what our goal was, then we could get to work. Um, and and that's what we did. Nice. 
So you exited, you, you, so you, you indicated you've since exited um, your role with, with CIS. Where are you now? So I currently serve as the chief executive officer for a company called Sage Family of Companies, S-A-G-E. And uh, Sage uh, is another private equity-backed uh, hospice business. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm back in hospice. Um, the, 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 the short story there is the private equity partners and sponsors that I worked with at CIS asked me to then come over and, and take over one of their other portfolio companies. Okay. Um, so I'm working with the same private equity firm uh, that I just worked with. Oh, neat. Yeah. So let's, let me ask a little more about uh, private equity, because I think that's really an interesting area and way of financing. Uh, what is, you, you talked a little bit about how they operate, but what is what is a private equity firm? What does it do? Private equity firms invest in, well, and in, in, I'm sure I will, I will oversimplify this, but yeah. private equity firms will invest in otherwise established companies with, with certainly the intent of doing well and doing good um, in, in markets that they think and in industries that, that they think both have a need, have the opportunity and, and uh, for, for um, both quality as well as value creation. Okay. So, so for example, maybe the contrast is a venture capital type of business who tend to be more real startup focused. So there is no, in a, in a VC world, uh, there is no business yet, but there's an idea and we're going to invest money and we're going to be intimately involved in creating the business. On the private equity side, there's an interest in getting into a space and we go and we purchase an already established company. That makes sense. Uh, that does make sense. Um, so they have a fund of some sort, much like a VC. Is that is that correct? Yep. yep. So and they and private. Yep. Private equity firms tend to be uh, much larger. Um, um, they they are typically uh, you know uh, much much greater sort of capital and cash, and and they they typically will have multiple funds. Um, whereas VC firms tend to be smaller. Um, and in, in some cases, it might be one or two investors who, who, again, are just looking for, I don't know, maybe somewhere in the an initial investment of $10 million to start a, a VC-backed company, whereas in the private equity space, uh, the initial investment could be $25, 50000000 $100 million to purchase an, an existing company. So, and the way you've described it, it, it is it always that they buy an initial business and then they grow that business by further acquisitions? Is it, what is the kind of mode of operation? Yeah. And, and this is where I'll, I'll speak at least to, to my experiences, the, the, the private equity, again, the investment thesis is start with a, uh, an initial acquisition, you know, uh, uh, call it a basis for, for, expansion. And then it's a series of maybe smaller acquisitions, maybe other large scale acquisitions. There's certainly an expectation and a focus on operational efficiency and organic growth 
private equity maybe divergent here a little bit. Private equity, I don't know, maybe, maybe 10, 20 years ago, maybe had the a, sort of a bad reputation of coming in and, and sort of stripping down, cutting costs, creating value that way, and then and then selling it. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's not been my experience. That's not the private equity world that I know today. Today, um, there's still a huge focus on the quality, uh, especially in healthcare, the quality of service, and there's a real interest in in whatever service line they're investing in. So the focus there today is really more about creating value through growth, as opposed to creating value through cost reduction. Right. If I if I oversimplify it, so there's a heavy growth, there's a heavy growth focus. So the intent, though, is these are not firms that are building a permanent portfolio. They're building. They see an opportunity in a space. Do they often look for maybe undervalued firms or firms that could that need to be kind of turned around in some way that they're kind of are in trouble and then they could they can get at a good price? Is that kind of the right model? Absolutely. And and that's where, I guess, again, in, in my experience, maybe someone like me comes in handy and, and someone who can come in and, and implement process and, and structural change and, and just help what might otherwise be, I'll, I'll keep using the same word, an, an unsophisticated business become a little bit more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And, and with the idea then of building the, uh, uh, or, 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 creating a growth plan off of off of that. So and maybe a, a slightly unorganized, underdeveloped, undervalued business, but but who through diligence it's it's clear and identified that with a few tweaks and changes and the expertise that we can bring in can can be far more efficient and then therefore valuable. That, that's that's really the focus. And then they look to maybe add on, find some more similar businesses in a similar condition that they can acquire and apply that same kind of more sophisticated management from someone like yourself to, to increase the value of those assets. And then yeah. at some point they, they exit, they sell the business and they exit. And then that money goes back into their fund and they decide, do we want to stay in you know, mental health services or hospice or whatever and pursue something else? Exactly. Exactly. So it's a so it's a cycle of a, a number. It sounds like your description has been years. It's not like a six month thing where they come in, parachute in, make a bunch of changes and sell it right away. It's usually it sounds like it's a years long process. Is that your experience? That that that's been my experience. Uh, I I think it, at least to the extent that I I sort of track and monitor what happens across the industry. That's what I've seen mostly. On occasion, the, there there are transactions, maybe may similar to to my experience with Solomore Sun to Genesis to Life oh. Choice, where it just it flips quickly. <laughs> um, there, there have yeah. been some of those, but predominantly, my experience has been that the private equity life cycle could be anywhere from three, call it maybe four to seven years. Okay, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, well, let's, let's close. I appreciate the time you've given me so far, but so let's, let's talk a little bit about leadership, uh, to close out our discussion. You've held a lot of senior positions in, in, in many organizations that we've gone through. Um, 
What have you learned about what makes an organization effective from those experiences? Can you give me a specific example? Yes, I can. And, and there are a lot of them, right? So, so every organization is different. And, and so what makes one organization effective may be very different from another. To me, from a, from a leadership perspective, it's been about really understanding the strengths of the organization, building on those, to put it maybe more simply, doing what they do best, doing what we do best. If we are really good at this, let's focus on that. Um, and then to the extent that that skill set, those processes, as it might be, um, those uh, resources, the talent, the people, the technology, and in other cases, to the extent that they can be leveraged to, to expand and provide other services, that's great. Um, but um, where I've seen organizations, and, and, and again, I'll repeat the word, when I can see, see organizations that aren't effective, they tend to stray a little bit from, from what they're good at. We, we try to do too many things. So in my experience, it's been identify the strength, figure out what we're really good at, and then build off of that. And, and then the other piece is ensuring that, especially leadership, but ideally the entire organization is aligned on the objectives. As we know, you know, in, in some of the organizations I've been a part of, 2,000, 10,000, 20,000 employees, it's hard, probably a little unrealistic to think we're going to get everybody aligned. Sure. But, but if we can ensure that uh, as much as possible, and especially through a leadership uh, at the leadership levels, that everyone's clear on what the goals are, what the timelines are, the expectations. And, and from a management perspective, you know, there has to be a fair amount of accountability. And, and good organizations, effective organizations can do all of those things and they do them quickly. So how has your leadership thinking evolved, you know, going back to from, from being in the mailroom at Metaplex to, to now being the CEO of Sage, how, how has your leadership evolved over time? What, what lessons have you picked up along the way? Yeah. So I, I realize there were a lot of sleepless nights early in my career, worrying about the fact that, that I needed to know everything. I realize now I, I didn't then and I don't today. Um, good leaders aren't the smartest people in the room. They surround themselves with smart people. Uh, good leaders um, don't necessarily try to control everything. They, they create and support teams that can then handle all of the tasks and, and the appropriate focuses. So maybe to, to, to recap it, I used to think I needed to be the smartest person in the room. Now I know I don't. That's that that doesn't make a great leader. So you mentioned um, leaders grow, uh, you know, younger leaders. How do you go about doing that? What do you what do you particularly look to do? Um, both maybe from talent identification and then and then mentoring uh, and growing. Yeah. I, to me, and, and it's interesting, I, I like that question as well. Uh, maybe other leaders would, would feel the same way, but I look back at my own experiences, which are, okay, what worked well for me and, and, and what did I appreciate? What do I think others appreciated in me? And, and it was the willingness 
to work hard, to uh, to learn, and to to sort of demonstrate the capacity to quickly align with the objective. Uh, and and um, as I think about the many of the great, brilliant people that I've worked with and leaders that have worked for me, I, I've quick side note, I, I've probably learned more from them than than they've learned from me. But the the common uh, thread I, I think amongst all of them is they've been willing to learn and willing to teach and and willing to uh, you know call it collaborate and partner. And and to me those that those characteristics that that focus make make the best leaders. Those are people who now in my role, I know at a minimum I, I can trust. Uh, now, in, in certain aspects, obviously, if we're, we're hiring a, a CFO, it'd be good for that person to have some, some specific financial training, right? If we're going to have a chief clinical officer, it's important that that person be a strong clinician. But, but generally speaking, as leaders, it's those other characteristics, the ability to learn, willingness to teach, and, and capacity to collaborate. I would, I would take a team like that any day. You know, listening to your your story and how you've kind of moved between organizations, we've already said this a couple of times, but like, it it seems like it's a lot of it is your reputation, um, your uh, people knew you, got to know you. What advice do you have for young people coming out and beginning their careers and how how should they behave and what should they be focusing on to to make sure that they have that same kind of network of of support that that you seem to have that that's kind of carried you from you know success to success sure the advice i would give is i'd say you you, you have to be yourself um try to avoid feeling like or or ultimately pretending to be something else right uh, feeling like there's a need to be or or again pretending to be uh, be yourself uh, be a great listener I, most of what I've learned and and ultimately been able to then apply later in my career came from sitting quietly in a room and listening and observing other people um, be willing to be helpful and 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 every time there's an opportunity to learn something new, focus on on the excitement of learning something new, not the fear of not knowing how to do it. Um, that, that, that fear can be crippling. I, I, if I reflect back again, I, I would say when I was younger, back before I really appreciated what we did, I was a bit fearless. I, I wasn't thinking about what am I going to be doing when I'm 40 and 50 and 60. I was thinking about how do I learn how to do this job to the best of my ability today? And then the opportunities will come. And, uh, and, and then I think, you know, more on a personal level, people want to be around. They want to work with nice people. They want to work with good people. If, if, you, can, if, if you can impart to others that, that all of those things, a unique and genuine interest in the work, a willingness to learn, and, and then, again, that, that capacity to be helpful great things will come. I, I have no doubt about it. I, I have two daughters and that's what I try to teach them every day. 
So let me uh, let me close on this this question with you. You've been in the industry now 30 years thereabouts. What is it that uh, gives you the most satisfaction? What what gets you up in the morning and going to work with a smile on your face and gives you that satisfaction? Yeah, uh, to me, I come right back to to those days at the, uh, I think it was the Frontier Group example. I remember those moments when the numbers became patients and the dollars became pharmacy costs and the hours became rehab. The, the connection to providing support, because that's what I do, to clinicians who then provide the service to these patients and families, it's a privilege to do this work. I think of that every day. I remind myself of that every day. It's a true privilege. As long as I stay connected to that every day, every day, <laughs> there are challenges every day. And, and sometimes I, I wish, uh, you know, they, they didn't happen. Um, but the, the piece that keeps me grounded and connected is, is that commitment and that focus on sort of doing good and, and to the patients and families uh, that we're so privileged to care for. That's, that's, that's how I do it. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and, and with my listeners. I appreciate it. And it's just been really fascinating to hear about your career. Yeah, Mark, thank you. Pleasure to talk and uh, good luck to all of your listeners out there. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.